It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, yesterday we had a really interesting discussion over some proposals by the NTSB to limit speeding deaths in the future. And a lot of the callers raised really interesting points. And wherever they came down on it, I really appreciated their perspective. One of the things that I mentioned was a rather interesting proposal from Professor John Banzaff. Now, I mentioned yesterday, and I'll say this even though you're about to hear from him in a moment, that he is exactly the type of person that you would never want to be friends with. Because not only is this man a brilliant lawyer, in fact, he was a professor of public interest law at George Washington University Law School, kind of achieved legendary status there, but he's also an MIT educated engineer and holds multiple patents. He's been called the man behind the band on cigarette commercials, uh, the Ralph Nader of cigarettes. He's one of those people that upon listening to, upon reading, and upon meeting, you kind of realize right away that he's much smarter than you. So how can you ever be friends with someone like that? Well, I might not be able to be friends with him, but I can absolutely have him on the radio because it just so happens there is a cornucopia of issues that require his expertise. Very pleased to welcome back to the program a professor of public interest law emeritus at George Washington University Law School, John Banzaff. Professor, it's great to talk with you. Thanks, Frank. I do consider you a friend, and let's talk about this proposal. Uh, there's a very interesting study just came out, and as Forbes magazine reported it, quote, most drivers engage in dangerous behavior, and speeders are the worst. And in fact, one-third of all traffic fatalities in the U.S. are caused by speeding. So the NTSB, as it's called here in Washington, has proposed a complex system. It wants to use your car's GPS location. It wants to use a database of posted speed limits. wants to add on some onboard cameras. And they're going to use all of this just to warn you, just to warn the driver when they're speeding, which probably won't do that much good. <laughs> but since it's going to require new technology and many years to test and implement, it's only going to be marginally effective years from now. There's a much better, simpler today solution. I want to get into that solution and pick your brain on a number of other things. But one of the things that I like to do, I've noticed with, with my audience, and I think with most audiences, they don't mind hearing alternative views. If they're conservative, they don't mind hearing a, a liberal perspective. If they're liberal, they don't mind hearing a conservative perspective. But people don't like to feel like they're being duped. For instance, they don't like to uh, think that they're listening to someone that uh, calls balls and strikes and is uh, supposedly objective while they're sneaking in right-wing or left-wing propaganda, just so the audience can kind of guard themselves against you uh, as they may need to against whatever biases you may have. Fill folks in. Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you something else? How would you characterize your own politics? I would not characterize my politics as either. I try to be practical 
And in fact, I'm one of the few people who ever sat on both sides of that old uh, CNN program, Crossfire, mm-hmm. <laughs> where I got integrity, where I was yelled at by the conservative on one program, I was yelled at by the liberal on the other, so I try to just be reasonable in the middle. I, I, I do remember at least one of those appearances, and they were certainly always, uh, always spirited. All right, so let's talk about uh, speeding and speed limiting. The proposal by the NTSB, I didn't realize that was just a warning. I actually thought it would limit uh, the, uh, the speed that a car would drive. What are you proposing? Uh, you seem to say it would be much more effective and could be implemented much more easily. Yes, both, all of them. Here's why. Virtually every modern car on the road today already has a high-speed limiter, which is built in to the existing onboard computer. And it is set by the manufacturer so that once you go above the set speed, it will not let you go any faster. Now, the only problem is the set speeds range from 110 to 150 miles an hour, which is roughly the speed at which your tires would disintegrate from centrifugal force. So all you would have to do, I shouldn't say you, but any car dealer, any good garage, uh, even some amateurs, I, I actually used one, simply plugs in a simple device and resets that high-speed uh, limit. It's, it's a little bit like uh, if you have a computer and you have a word processor and you reset the font and the size and whether it's boldface or something like that. And so without waiting for the NTSB or Congress or anybody else, Any state, your state, my state, could simply pass a requirement saying, from now on, every car's got to have an upper limit set at, say, 90 miles an hour, maybe even 100 miles an hour. Now, for people who have teen drivers, people worried about stuck throttle runaway accidents, people convicted of DWI and so on, maybe the courts would order it lower, but this could be done tomorrow. And then every time you bring your car in for inspection, as everybody does in every state, one of the things they would inspect is, has the speed limit been set, say, to 90 or 100 miles an hour? It's so simple. It can be done instantly. Any one state which wants to do it first and, in a sense, test it out can do it. I mean, it sounds very simple and very easily implemented. What's been the reaction from your proposal, well, from regulators and from legislators and policymakers to your proposal so far? I've been talking about this for years, and so far it hasn't uh, really gotten very much traction. I think the primary reason is, number one, people aren't aware of the fact that you have a speed limiter Mm -hmm your car because who goes 140 miles an hour the other is government bureaucrats always tend to prefer the more complicated expensive (laughs) time-consuming and less effective solution to a problem when there may be a very simple one just you know under the under their noses and i think this one is one which which is there and as i say again any state could adopt the legislation in a week have it go into effect that very year and you try it. And if it seems to work well and reduces accidents, then other states can try it. If for some reason I'm wrong and it doesn't work very well or there's a problem with it, then that state simply erases that law and you're back at zero. You're not talking about any new systems. You're not talking about new software even. You're just talking about basically setting a value in a field just like 
virtually every computer user does with many programs. One of the the things that some uh, listeners raised yesterday, or at least one listener, was, okay, well, what good would this do if some cars were had this limiting technology and others didn't? Under your proposal, pretty much all cars, including existing cars on the road, would be able to transition to this right away, right? That's exactly right. Virtually every car on the road today with the possible exception of some of these 1920 antiques that they roll out on special occasions, has this computer, has a top speed limiter already built in. It's tested. It works. You don't have to have a GPS locator. Mm. You don't have to have a database of posted speed limits. All you got to do is change that one little value. You go in there, you find the field that says top speed or speed limiting field, and if it says 130, you change it and you make it 90 or 95 or 100, whatever that state feels is appropriate. By the way, Texas might have a higher uh, rate, say, than Connecticut. Sure. Sure. Uh, no, that uh, that makes sense, and uh, I find that very difficult to uh, to disagree with. Let me ask you about a legal issue, which has become very much a political issue as well, and it's something I know you've been following very, very closely. A judge has apparently rejected uh, President Trump's claim of immunity in his prosecution. I know you've been all over this in your commentary and even as an activist to some extent. What do you make of uh, the decision by Judge Chutkin saying that uh, President Trump is not immune from prosecution? Right decision? Wrong decision? I think it's entirely true as a matter of law. I've said so for, for many years. And by the way, you probably recall that when Trump was in office, I was frequently asked to do a legal analysis on some of his proposals. Some I said were constitutional, even I, though I might disagree with them. Some of them I said probably weren't constitutional, even regardless of how I felt about them. I think it's pretty clear that, that you don't get immunity, perpetual immunity particularly, uh, once you're out of office for things that you may have done. You may have a separate issue if you're talking about somebody who is sitting as a president at the moment, for example, Biden. You wouldn't want somebody, say, in Iowa, some uh, prosecutor in Iowa, suddenly yanking him in on some charge and tying up the entire government. But Trump has been out of office now for quite some time. Uh, If, in fact, he committed various crimes, and the evidence seems to suggest that he has, then I think it's it's a proper ruling. But uh, by way of full disclosure, remember that I was the one who actually filed a complaint against Trump uh, in Georgia, and by the way, I think that's the one which is likely to give him the most trouble. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask that. I, I realized you were behind that, uh, basically the impetus of that prosecution. Do you think that's the toughest uh, case that he's facing? I think it's toughest for many reasons. First of all, whether or not he gets elected president or not, he can't pardon himself mm-hmm. and promise to pardon people who might testify against him. Anybody convicted is facing a minimum of five years. There are no pardons, or at least the governor can't grant a pardon in the state. Uh, pardons are rare. They are using a RICO uh, thing, which, again, is one thing I recommended, which gives them tremendous, tremendous power to bring in all different kinds of people and testimony and things which you couldn't otherwise bring in. And so for all these reasons, I think, yeah, you're going to – that's the most dangerous for him. We know that a couple of those people have already – flipped, I think I can say with virtual certainty that many more of those named defendants in Georgia are going to flip and testify against Trump. Uh, 
Another thing that's very much on people's minds, especially if they have children or grandchildren that are on college campuses, is the issue of free speech. You've spent uh, the better part of the last few decades in and around college campuses. Give me your view on the state of free speech on college campuses these days and how people who feel that minority views are being repressed. And I generally hear it mostly from right-leaning parents or right-leaning students, how people whose uh, views might be being suppressed on college campuses can guarantee their free speech in the future. Okay, that's a little complicated. I'll say, answer your first question, the way I would describe free speech on campuses today I can't use on radio. (laughs) Is that it does look like uh, the rules are not evenly enforced. What they can do is they can file complaints uh, with the Department of Education. Uh, The Department of Education is currently investigating some 50 different schools, about a dozen different universities. My university, George Washington University, has the unique distinction of being under two different investigations. But turning to the testimony today, or yesterday, I guess, Mm -hmm. Uh, your listeners probably remember that the, the college presidents got up there and basically said, oh, we can't do anything about it. This free speech. We can't stop them from doing it. Well, a word I can use on the, on the air is that's crap and BS. And just to give you a quick example, my little university, they said they can't do things because of free speech. Well, they suspended it, almost expelled a student for very briefly displaying a religious symbol, just displaying it. When one of our law students used the single word Jew, J-E-W, in a private conversation, they began an investigation of the student. Uh, When some students, Chinese students, put up posters criticizing human rights violations by the Chinese government, uh, they began an investigation which, as you know, probably could lead, could threaten the lives of those students because the Communists have a way of doing something about it. They ordered one of our students to stop displaying a Palestinian flag, although students were displaying all kinds of other flags. They said there's a real risk that he might fall to the ground, hit somebody on the head. I've never heard of somebody being injured by a falling flag. And in my case, I was a tenured professor. I was ordered to respond to a complaint that said I was rude, R-U-D-E, when I asked a non-GW trespasser to leave an illegally entered private non-GW building. And a couple of years ago, on the eve of their graduation, they almost expelled several students for publishing a satire of the dean in an April Fool's issue. (laughs) Tell me colleges can't crack down. Everything I gave as an example here is obviously a hundred times less serious than calling for the death of Palestine or the, you know, from the river to the sea, whatever they're talking about. These are nothing. They didn't hesitate. Uh, Another organization looked at Harvard, which is one of those that testified uh, yesterday, and they pointed out seven different violations of free speech over the last couple of years. So these colleges can crack down if they want. I'm a notorious defender of free speech, but when it crosses the line and it goes from a a mere expression of of a view to a threat or harassment or whatever, it can and should be punished. Colleges don't do it. 
you, if you know of an instance, you should write to the Department of Education, file a formal complaint. It's very easy. And by the way, if the person involved doesn't want to file a complaint, wants to remain anonymous, get a friendly professor. They can file it also. You don't have to be the victim. And send a copy to your single legislator, your representative in the House, and also your two senators, because they are beginning to crack down and put pressure on the schools. I guess one question some people may have is, where is that line between hate speech and free speech? For some people, that phrase that you alluded to, from the river to the sea, is a call for the abolition of Israel and is uh, deeply anti-Semitic. For other people, it's more of a, a show of Palestinian solidarity. Before you know whether or not it's appropriate to uh, make a complaint with the Department of Education, how are you to know kind of where that line is? In some cases, I admit it would be difficult to draw, but we have a standard which has been around for almost 100 years, which says that as long as the speech does not present a clear and present, clear and present danger, it is constitutionally protected. So, for example, I could stand up in the middle of the quad of my university and start yelling, let's nuke Norway. Is that a clear and present danger to anyone on campus? Obviously not. Uh, none of them are in Norway at the moment, and even if by some bizarre circumstance somebody would get the idea of nuking Norway, there's no way they could do it. It's not a very real threat. So simply saying, in general, let's eliminate Israel, that is not a threat to anyone on the campus. Now, if you have a Jewish student and you put that on his door, that's very different. If somebody's walking by a Jewish student and starts yelling at the Jewish student that all Jews should be dead or in a gas chamber or whatever, that's a threat that crosses the line where it's a close case then the agency, which has the expertise, can make that decision. And by the way, let me tell you, having been on the inside of some of these, the mere fact that a complaint is filed, much less as the department agrees to investigate, puts tremendous pressure on a university to do something about it and to take things seriously. Another uh, alternative, by the way, is the fact that increasingly alumni and trustees are now getting completely upset about what's going on. They're threatening to withhold their their contributions, in many cases very large ones, or they're threatening uh, to do other things about mm. the school. And by the way, there's an underlying question here, which maybe we can get into another time, and that is putting aside what the university can do if there are students running around who want to make all these slogans and, and so on. question is why. Why is it on college campuses, and apparently not among students, uh, not among kids of the same age? You don't find too many kids, 18 to 25, who are not in college, who are out there working in the real world, marching around and doing these kind of things. So why only on college campuses? That's probably a more important underlying issue. What are we doing to them on the campus that so many of them 
would have these views. You, you know, it's so interesting in the, in the in considering what the role of campus administrators and college administrators should be in larger political issues. There was a uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal maybe about a month ago by Mike Bloomberg who said college presidents got themselves into this situation where people were demanding that they make a statement on the Israel-Palestinian conflict one way or another because they made statements on George Floyd and all sorts of other issues that have nothing to do with the college. On uh, Face the Nation on uh, Sunday, I think it was the governor of either Colorado or Utah that basically said he's asked the college administrators in his uh, state not to, uh, the, the presidents, not to make any statements on world issues that don't affect their college campus. Do you think the college campus leadership is best to abstain from making comments about world affairs or even domestic affairs that don't directly pertain to the colleges? Exactly. In fact, there is a movement on campuses. I forget the exact name, but that's exactly what they're being urged to do, not to issue statements, whether it's the president or the dean, on anything unless it pretty directly and immediately involves the university itself. And one author put it this way. He said, with regard to the Hamas-Israel war, what are your options? You can condemn one side and express sympathy for the other. That's a a sure loser, he says. He says you can condemn both sides. That's an even sure loser because both sides will be aggravated. You could support the legitimate aspirations of both sides and reject violence. And then you're going to be faulted for occupying a a lofty perch on these issues. Uh, Or you can issue a general statement in support of peace and diplomatic negotiation, and then you're going to be accused of trafficking in pious platitudes. College presidents, deans, are not chosen because they have some particular skill or ability or training to deal with international issues to deal with uh, starvation in Africa, <laughs> to deal with police shootings. Right, nuclear like that. Right. So I think unless it directly and immediately involves the, the university, somebody's going to put a road through the middle of it, somebody's going to take away their scholarships or whatever, the answer is no, don't say anything. Individual professors, sure, they can say anything they want, but the university should not then feel an obligation to come out and say, Professor Smith just said, blah, 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 this is outrageous and we disagree. No, you make no position. Individual professors express their own views, and I think everybody recognizes that. Uh, We're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about this because you wrote something very interesting on this that uh, I think people are going to be very fascinated by. There's been a lot of discussion, a lot of very heated debate over the role of transgender athletes at the uh, collegiate level, at the high school level, at the Olympic level. And a lot of folks are calling for states to pass laws to make sure people that were born biological females are competing against folks that were born biological females and the same with uh, people born biological males. Give me your view on the transgender issue as it relates to sports specifically, especially as it relates to colleges. I think very clearly that there are at least four very compelling reasons why the M2F transgender athlete, the male turning into a female supposedly, shouldn't be allowed to play and compete on girls' teams. First, in most sports, males have a very significant size and strength advantage 
That means that they can rob girls and women of opportunity to compete fairly and win, more importantly, perhaps at the college level, obtain scholarships, uh, preference in admission, other advantages. Secondly, in contact sports, and this is football, boxing, wrestling, uh, even basketball, there is a very real danger of serious and possibly permanent physical injuries to girls and women. And by the way, even in non-contact sports like volleyball, I've documented four of them, and there probably are many more, where girls have been seriously injured permanently because they were playing against a much bigger, taller, stronger male. Third is when you force uh, girls and women to shower and change clothing with these M2F uh, trans, it violates their right to sexual and bodily privacy. There are many schools now which force these girls to change their clothing, to shower with these people with testicles and and a penis, and uh, that's unreasonable. I found a court decision saying it's unreasonable even to to force a male to display himself before the other kind, the uh, female-to-male trans person. So it's much more serious, I think, with girls. I know of one place up in Vermont where the girls now have to change in a uh, uh, a, a toilet stall because they don't want to expose themselves. Mm -hmm. Finally, Mm -hmm. I think, bearing the tiny minority of male to to female transgender athletes who happen to want to play a particular sport like volleyball is much less unfair than barring males from female-only teams if there is no corresponding men's team. Very quickly, at my school, GW, we have a women's volleyball uh, team, NCAA, but no men. I coach the, the, the men in a club team. I can tell you we got 30 or 40 every year who, if they were allowed to go on the women's team, either because they were allowed or they pretended to be trans, they could beat the women, take away their scholarships, get preferential admission, get better programs. So barring, I don't know, one-tenth of one percent of uh, male-to-female transgender athletes who happen to be skilled at volleyball because they're really males is far less unfair than barring ordinary, everyday, typical, traditional males, uh, simply because they happen to have a penis and we don't have a uh, men's NCAA volleyball team at GW. So, so the solution is to allow male athletes the option to play on female teams if they qualify and if there's no male team, rather than simply say that they have to identify as a female in order to play. Yeah, but that would be crazy because right. I think in most sports... Uh, the males would dominate, and you would have uh, female basketball, volleyball, football, or any other team made up entirely of people with a penis. And that's not what we want. That's not what Title uh, Six was designed to protect against. Uh, so is, is the solution... The problem, obviously, is when you have males, and I don't call them biological males, because that's what male means. Right, right, I understand. calling us a, a round circle. A circle <laughs> is round. A male is somebody who has male uh, external genitalia, who has male chromosomes, the XY, who has the narrower pelvis that males have and females do not have. If you have them, and you said if they meet the criteria, the criteria right now is claiming, claiming simply 
to be transgender. And I found an instance where some guy uh, who had a beard claimed to be transgender, and they let him on the team. And he hurt the he hurt a po- uh, po- person on the other side. So from a policy perspective, the sanest thing to do is just to prohibit this. I think the only fair thing to do is to prohibit them, or if they want to set up separate competitions, there are enough people interested, you could have a male-to-female transgender volleyball tournament between uh, uh, schools or colleges within a certain region. But I think that there's no solution to this which is absolutely fair, and everybody would agree that it's fair to everybody. And what I'm suggesting is, since we are already at dozens of schools, barring males from competing on female teams if they don't claim to be transgender. It doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. to allow one person who doesn't have to meet any criteria to go on to uh, and to try out for a women's team simply by saying, oh, I happen to believe, I happen to believe that I... Let me put it to you like this. Would a 20-year-old be able to be permitted to... Uh, compete in the senior Olympics where you have to be over 50? Simply because he says, oh, I feel like I'm only uh, uh, I'm over 50, or I believe I'm 55 years of age. Right. Yeah, I bet I could do uh, pretty well in my uh, in in my son's t-ball league, but uh, something tells me they're not going to let me participate in that just because I feel like a child. Uh, Professor John Banzeff, it is always a uh, treat to talk with you. Uh, not only do I always feel more informed, but I, I feel more inspired towards seeking out of the box creative solutions and towards activism in general. I appreciate you staying up late with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.